Welcome to Hope City Church, Melbourne, Australia. Stay tuned for another inspiring message by Pastor Andrew McGrath. What does it mean to be a forerunning people? Now, you've heard me talk about this before. But as I've been praying about this, I recognise that a lot of people know the term, but maybe it still hasn't sunk deep into their spirits. What does it mean to be a forerunning church? If we say we are a forerunning church, what does that mean? If you're a forerunning person, well, what does that mean to be a forerunning person? It's a nice term. It's a bit quirky. And as I look around, there's a few quirky people here. It's a bit unusual. It's not normal. It's not mainline. It's not safe. But what does it really mean? What is God raising up forerunning people in this hour? I believe he is. And so it's so important for all the church, all of us, not just the first two rows or the, first, the last two rows or the leaders, but for every single person here to understand and embrace what it means to be a forerunner. Are you getting that? It's so important you get this, and it's my job as your pastor or leader to articulate in a clear way so you know without any doubt the calling of God on your life because you're part of this church. To be a forerunning church is only effective if we say that if every member understands and embraces that and begins to confess that over their life. So as you're praying during the week, that, this, that we're aligned in our prayer life. You see, many, many churches, many organ, Christian organizations are not aligned spiritually. We come together, we sit together, we have coffee together, we have fellowship, but we're not aligned spiritually. We're not kindred spirit. We don't all have the same deep understanding of the calling of God in our life, and we haven't all embraced that. So what the Holy Spirit does, he comes and he moves upon a congregation to bring us together into a true unity of purpose. Are you getting that? That's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to do. And so you know what it's like. You can be in a prayer meeting. I've been in many of these where somebody's praying. You may be in a circle and someone's praying and you're thinking about what you're going to pray next or you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner and, uh, and there's little power in, in that sort of prayer because one person's praying and the other five or six are doing their own thing. There's not unity of purpose. You're not focused on that prayer that's being prayed and engaging that with your mind and your spirit. Are you getting this? And so the same when it comes, when God's people come to church, when God's people function as a church throughout the week, there has to be unity of purpose and mind. So we say, this is my church. This is my vision. This is my calling. And that you pursue it as passionately as I do. For if God has placed you in this church, it's for this reason that your passion for the mandate of this church would be so hot that it would put me to shame. You're not just another person that fills a seat or puts in some offering. You are a member of this church and part of the very mandate that God has for this church. So I want to talk to you today about what it means to be a forerunning church. There are a number of forerunners in the New Testament, John the Baptist. There are others that as we look at their lives, we can unpack what it means to be a forerunner. And I want to talk to you today about this amazing woman called Anna. There's about three or four verses that are attributed to her life, but we can see in her the characteristics and the mandate of a forerunner. So if you're ready, let's read Luke 2 verse 36. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and she had lived with her husband for seven years from her virginity. It's a strange way of putting it, but essentially it means that she was married for seven years. And it says, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years. 
The actual Greek, and you'll see in many translations, tell us that what it means is that she was married for seven years. We think most Jewish girls got married about 16, so she was probably about 23 when her husband died, and then she'd been widowed for 84 years. So you do the sums, I think it's about 106 years old. And she did not depart from the temple. So she's been in the temple for 84 years. And she served God with fasting and prayer night and day for 84 years. And coming in this one moment, this one moment in time of her life, she gave thanks to the Lord that Jesus had been brought into the temple at this stage. And she sees the baby Jesus. I think he's eight days old at this stage for memory. And he comes into the temple in that instant. And she gave thanks to the Lord when she saw Jesus, the baby. Think of that. The religious people didn't identify Jesus when he was 30. They didn't see him as the Messiah, but here's a woman who sees him as an eight-day-old baby and sees the Messiah. That's called prophetic insight. Easy to recognize a calling on a man when he's 30, but not so much in a baby at eight years old. So she gives thanks to the baby and spoke of him to all those who look for the redemption in Jerusalem. This is the man. She's a forerunner. She's married for seven years. So as I look at this scripture, it's packed with insight. Married for seven years to an unnamed man. See, whenever the Bible leaves things out or adds things in, it's for a reason. She's married to this man. He's unnamed. He has no record of his genealogy. Not like... Jesus' parents, there's a whole chapter on the genealogy. But here we see Adam married to this man with no name, no trace of his lineage. There is with hers, but not with her husband. And no record of any children being born. Seven is the number for being fully satisfied. I want to put it to you that there are many in the kingdom of God that are satisfied with a deep relationship with the things of this world which don't bear fruit, which have no genealogy, have no history, and have no future. Satisfied with barrenness and boredom. And I wonder if there are people here today that you've been sort of one foot in, one foot out. You love God, you're going to heaven, but you're satisfied with a lifestyle that's not bearing eternal fruit playing around the edges, not quite yet willing to make that commitment. For seven years, this woman with an intense calling on her life to change the world, to recognize the Messiah. See, he's strategic. See, you'll find later on that it's her prayers and her intercessions. Now, imagine what's taking place over those 84 years. She's not just coming in and saying a few prayers and fasting and and whatever, she is wrestling and interceding because all of hell is being released to stop the Messiah coming. Every day that she's in that temple, there is demonic strongholds wrestling and she's waging a war because someone on earth has to pray and break through before Jesus can come. This is her calling. But for seven years, she's married to a man. And I hope I'm not doing this man a disservice. But for seven years, it appears she's married to a man who's given her no fruit, has no heritage, no inheritance, and no name. And it's a picture of many in the church that you'll get to the end of your life and look at what you've done, and there's no fruit. Oh, there's a house, a car, kids. But the deep calling that was on your life was not pursued. There's excuses and niceties, and comfort, and all the things that we rationalize with. But this woman is missing the calling of God on her life. Now, this is not a sermon to leave your husband and wife, by the way, or to pray for their imminent death. But there's an analogy here. 
That what God's saying is that many are married who are called to be forerunners, who are called at this strategic moment. And it's almost like many in the church are missing the importance of this hour. It's like they're, it's like they're locked into this lull of stupidity and, and, and not seeing the urgency of the hour and just going through day after day and missing the deep calling that God has for their life. Married to an unnamed man, no fruit, no inheritance, and all of a sudden he's taken. I pray today that God begins in all of our lives to remove the things that don't bear fruit, to give us sharpness of vision to the hour that we are in, for us as a church to get a holy passion and determination that we would fulfill the assignment because if all of us collectively do no more than what we're doing now and don't press into what is before us we will all stand before God like this story and we'll be disappointed that we did not pursue the fullness of God's calling for our life this is the hour to embrace our prophetic calling. Satisfied with barrenness and boredom. Are there any like that today? Satisfied with a barren, bored life? The reason will be because you have not hooked in to the deep calling of your life. It was like Samson. You've heard me tell this story, but he, was, he had seven locks of hair representing the calling on his life to infiltrate all the seven mountains, all the seven kingdoms. He was called to be a judge that would bring the judgment or the mind of God to every realm of society. And he laid down in, on his wife's lap, Delilah, which means to impoverish and, and to make weak. And he laid down and went to sleep and she robbed him of his destiny and caused him to be blind. And there are many in the church today that have been lulled into this same spirit that was on Delilah. And we've let go the mandate for our church. Don't do it. Don't do it. Second Chronicles 12 verse 9 tells the story of King Solomon's son. And he allowed the king of Egypt to come into his kingdom and, and, and to break into the temple and to rob all the treasuries. And the story goes that the king of Egypt even took the shields in, in, the, in the temple that were made of gold and he stole them and he took them away. And so what King Solomon's son did, he replaced these gold shields with bronze shields and continued to worship like nothing had changed. Continuing the religious practices using shields of bronze, which is a defeated lifestyle and mindset, instead of shields of gold, which is the mindset we call to disciple nations. Do you see that? The, a lot of the church have allowed this high calling of God that he believes that the church would inherit the nations, that we would transform societies and we've allowed that to go away. We've allowed the enemy to rob us of that because it's too hard. It can never happen. There's too many things against us. The government's too crazy. Too many agendas. Too many people that are angry with the church. So we've allowed that to be robbed and we've embraced this mindset of just coming to church, staying under the radar, being a nice Christian and hopefully getting to heaven. Israel, when they were called of God, they were called to embrace the promised land. And many of them were satisfied living in Egypt. They longed to go back there. Egypt's a picture of the flesh. They were the called of God. They were going to heaven. They, they, they still worship God, but they, they downsized what God could do through them. They became satisfied with just living in the flesh. And there's many in the church, they call it the relevant church, who are satisfied with just staying under the radar. I tell you, my friend, it'll come a day where you won't be able to stay under the radar anymore. The relevant church. And then there were others that came out and they got into the, uh, the wilderness and they saw God move with miracles and signs and wonders. They didn't stay in Egypt. They began to press in. They knew that there were more. 
And we've seen that today. I see it as I study the church. There's a, there's a whole group of people that have left that lifestyle and they're, they're worshipping God. They're praying for miracles and signs and wonders. And it's a wonderful thing. But my friend, the wilderness wasn't the end destination. It was a promised land. And there's even a group of people that are satisfied with God doing miracles, healing people, seeing people saved, but they've got no vision. They've got no mandate to see all of society transformed. And it's got to be bigger than just what we do here on a Sunday. There has to be a mandate that we truly believe that Jesus, because he died on the cross, see, he died to redeem all that was stolen and lost. And the prize for his incredible suffering, which we cannot understand fully, is that the Father said, because of your suffering, because you didn't withhold yourself, I'm going to give you all of the nations, that the mountain of the Lord would be the chief of all mountains. He's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle that is equal in stature to the sun, that has learned to rule and reign in every facet of society. And I know it looks dark and tough, and I know it looks like it could never happen, but I want you to know the Bible says that a nation can be born in even a day. And even Samson, who had his eyes taken out, the Bible says in one day he killed more of the enemy than he'd done in all his lifetime because he got his vision back. Not with his natural eye, but he got his vision back here. His hair began to grow again. He began to get a revelation that God wants the mountains. And I see a stirring in this woman. She had been so satisfied in a nice little house with a nice little husband. But the deep calling that God had in her life had not been fulfilled. So God calls her. Anna, Anna, her name means grace. Anna, the daughter of Phanel, his name means seek his face of the tribe of Asher, which means blessing. I looked at that and I thought to myself, here's a woman that has a grace on her life to seek his face. And through that seeking of his face, the blessing of God would flow through her to the nations of the world. That was her spiritual inheritance. There was a grace on her life to seek the face of God so the blessing of God would touch the nations. She was a prophetess. She saw beyond what anyone else could see. See, if forerunners are needed for the first coming of Jesus, my question is, will they not be needed in the second coming of Jesus, will there not be men and women that God raises up as prophetic people that begin to see what others don't see and call out to the body of Christ, this is the way. Like John did, he prepared a highway for the coming of the Lord. He made the road straight so people could begin to stream in. And there's a, there is a requirement on every single person that sits in this church. You have heard what God is wanting to do. You have heard his heart for the nations. There is a requirement, not just on me, but on you to begin to call the bride and begin to sound the alarm and say, Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back for a church that is equal in measure to the sum. He's coming back for a church that has a faith reach that believes that all the city can be transformed. Not just people saved, but in the very fabric of the mindset of society in every area, government, in business, and in education and family, every facet that the kingdom of God has gone in like yeast and it's begun to, to make its way until the world begins to see the mind of God expressed through the sun. You have an obligation. You've sat here, some of you, for years. So it's time. It's time to live it out. It's time to speak it out. It's time to call others and say, I am a prophetic forerunner. Follow me as I follow Christ. She's a prophetess. She sees. 84 years, she's seeing the Messiah come. She's wrestling. For 84 years, 
interceding, praying. Why 84 years? Why not 83, 86, 87, 75, 76? Why 84? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? God likes random numbers. Widowed for 84 years. I said, God, that's an unusual number. He says it is. I don't know what it means, Andrew, but if you find out, let me know. I said, I'm working on it, Lord. 84, 84, 84. 84. She was married seven years. The husband dies. Something takes place within her and she begins to realize that she was called with a mandate to pray and intercede so the Messiah in his fullness would come to planet Earth. She's a picture of the end time church. 84 years. Seven years married. 84 years widowed. Now you know like me that 84 is made up of 7 times 12. And the Bible often works in prophetic numbers and patterns that are hidden for us to scratch beneath the surface and to see what God was saying. See, I believe this 84 years of her praying and fasting is a picture of this, is a picture of the seven-day church, which is the end-time church, the seventh-day church, functioning in governmental rule. Twelve is the number of government and rule. If you read the book E.W. Bullinger on numbers, 12 is always associated with governmental rule. We see that in the sky with the sun and the moon and the way that the, way that the hours of the day are structured. Always 12 is the number of government and rule. And seven, well, we know it's, it has its own unique number, but it's, it's always associated with fullness, but particularly of the Seventh-day Church. I'm not talking about the Seventh-day Adventists, but the Seventh-day Church. It's the Seventh-day Church pursuing an inheritance for the Son. These 84 years are a picture of what the church will look like in the last days. That This last-day church will be passionately pursuing the government of God on planet Earth. Are you getting this? And it will be a passionate thing. It won't be just for a day, but relentlessly for 84 years in prayer and fasting. She's now 106 years old, potentially. And she's praying and fasting with the same passion that she had when she first began. It's a picture of the church accelerated, now beginning to pray and believe and take all that Jesus deserves. The Seventh-day Church is remarkable because I've taught on this before and you can go back and look at some of our messages, but the Third-day Church and the Seventh-day Church are one and the same. You know that the Seventh-day Church speaks of how the Jews saw the world unwinding. From the days of creation, they, they always believed that Adam on behalf of mankind, had been given a six-day lease on planet Earth. And on the seventh day, the Messiah would come and there would be a fulfillment of God's plan on Earth. Third day is one and the same. It's the third day from Christ. And we are in that era, I've told you before, where the page is turning, where the third day or the seventh day, one and the same. Do you understand? Seven days from creation, three days from the time of Christ. They both land on where we are right now. And there is a turning of the page for God's kingdom to come. Do you know the Jews believe that in these six days, it would look like this. They said the first 200, sorry, the first 2,000 years would be chaos in the land. We saw from Adam to the time that Abraham was called out, there was chaos on the earth, was there not? If you study history, it was just chaos everywhere. And God calls Abraham out of that chaos. They then said that the, the the, the second lot, the second 2,000 years would mark the years of the Torah, of truth. But we also know that it marked the time where 
the one who is the ultimate truth came, and his name is Jesus. They said the third age would include the messianic age where there would be the Messiah who would come in his fullness. They knew that from the beginning of time that the earth is clearly marked out, a period of chaos, a period where truth would come, and a period where the messianic reign would come in its fullness. They knew that from the beginning. I want to pull it to you that it's always been God's plan. We are right in the very epoch of time. This is a critical moment in time. Do you know we see that even in Noah and the ark? You know, I've written a book on Noah and the ark, and it represents both the maturity of the believer, but it also represents the unwinding of time. Do you realize that Noah, at the end, he released a dove, and the dove went out looking for somewhere to land, and all he found the first time he was released was chaos. Water covered the earth, chaos everywhere. The second time he releases the dove, he goes out and he finds a leaf. It's a picture of the water receding and truth being revealed. The third time he releases the dove, there's no water on the earth, and the Holy Spirit has free reign to bring the kingdom in its fullness. I want you to see here today that God has a plan. We are in the last days. We are in the seventh day. We are in the day where Noahs are being released to bring the kingdom to all society. The third day is the number of completion. The seventh day is the number of covenant promise fulfilled. The body of Christ will see a new measure of maturity and the completion of God's plans. See, Noah's Ark, those three levels were about the body of Christ coming from sonship, sorry, from childhood to sonship to fatherhood. There will be in the third day a maturing of the body of Christ. Did you hear that? A maturing. So why am I saying this? Because this is what forerunning churches pray for. This is what we intercede for. It goes beyond, Lord, just bless me and you know, give me a nice day. You know, it goes way beyond that. The prayer of Anna in the temple was so deep. It was, a, it was a crying out for Jesus to be revealed. And so this forerunning church today, they are praying with the same urgency. Lord, take us from children to sons to fathers, from those that know how to, how to come into the kingdom and then be transformed, spirit, soul and body. So they are men and women that you can flow through that are equal in stature to the Son. Jesus is determined to come back for a bribe that is equal to him. Are you getting this? And this is what we pray. So Noah's Ark is a picture about maturity, but it's also a picture about covenant promise being fulfilled. The dove is released and it's a picture to us that the Holy Ghost is going to fill all of the earth. He'll be able to settle in any place. The kingdom of God will come in its fullness. The glory of the Lord will cover all the earth as the waters cover the sea. You need to get this. So we're praying for maturity, but we're also saying, Lord, let your kingdom come in its fullness. Holy Spirit, we're praying that there would be a greater demonstration of your power and activity on earth than there's ever been. And let it not just be in the church, but let it, let it come into every facet of society. The time to check out on Monday is over, church. The time to come to church and sing a few songs and forget about God for the rest of the week is well and truly over. You are called as much as I am called. Don't you dare ever think that I am called of God and you are not. That is an assignment on my life to lead the church and there's not a new. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The Bible teaches that all of us are priests and kings before the Lord. Your assignment is equal to my assignment. It may be different, but the callings of God upon your life are just as powerful as upon my life. And you are called from Monday to Saturday to function in kingly and priestly anointing in your workplace as well as I am in mine. The body of Christ, new maturity. So Joshua 3.3 3, 
Joshua tells the people, we're about to cross into the promised land. The ark's going before us, the presence of God. We're to keep 2,000 paces behind the ark because we've not been this way before. And you know, you've heard me say it's a picture of the end time church. And it's, it's amazing that he uses this term 2,000 cubics behind or paces behind you to keep from the ark. Let the ark go forward first because we've not been this way before. So many scholars think that it's a picture of where we are right now, that we're in a moment in time where God's going before us and there's nothing in history that we can reference to what's taking place now. And that's a problem for the church because we like to repeat ourselves. And that's what they did in the wilderness. They keep going around around circles, renaming towns. Oh, look, we just discovered a new town. It used to be called one thaggy, let's call it Geelong now. And they made it out like it's a whole new town. Now it's the same town with a new name. And that whole thing is stopped now because God's saying, I'm about to do, bring an expression of the kingdom in this time that nobody has any reference for. And I say thank the Lord for that. Because what he's going to do in this next generation whether it's through me or my children, I know it's coming. He's going to totally redefine the kingdom in this hour. And he said, when you see deep darkness, sing for joy because the light's coming. And there will be such a clash of kingdoms. There will be no mistaking light and darkness because when darkness comes, behold, the light arise and shine for the light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen over his people. Speaking of the seventh day, I read about this and it's interesting, so I wanted to share this with you, but in the seventh day, there were four acts attributed to the work of God that we will see in this hour. The first act was that God finished his work on the seventh day. And everyone said, the first act was he finished his work. I'm excited about that because God has promised that faithful who he who has called you who also will do it. I don't know about you, but when I look through my window and I see the mountains and many, many houses as I look through, I've got a great view of the eastern suburbs and I pray Jesus Christ is King and Lord of Lords over this city. There's a little part of me that says, and I don't know how you're going to do it. But he's promised that he's going to finish the work. He's promised it. I have no idea. It's a bit like Moses when he stood at the Red Sea. I don't know how you're going to do it, Lord, but you've promised that you've taken us to the promised land. And there is no way I can see any way out. The, the Pharaoh's coming in his armies and there's a sea behind us and I've got millions of, of people to look after and there's no escape route. Either the rapture's coming or you're going to have to do something amazing. And God did. He opened the Red Sea. God's going to have to open the Red Sea again for the church to take its place. But he said in the seventh day, he finished his work. And isn't it interesting that in Joshua, when Joshua marched around the walls of Jericho, he arose early on the seventh day and defeated the enemy. And I put it to you that it will be early on this seventh day that the wonders of God will be released. The other thing about the second day, it says that God made the heavens and the earth on the sixth day, but he ended his work on the seventh. And the rabbis believe that God did one creative work on the Sabbath. He created this thing called rest. And what will happen amongst the Seventh-day Church is that we will come into this incredible spirit of rest. God says that the children of Israel didn't enter into the promised land because of unbelief. They didn't know how to live in the rest. And all this anxiety and agitation and fear that the enemy wants to bring on the church is going to be broken and we will come into a supernatural rest of the Lord. It will be a rest and it will defy natural logic. It's the same rest where Stephen could be stoned 
And yet he prayed for them. Forgive them, Lord, for they don't know what they're doing. You know, he prayed this wonderful prayer. He looked up to heaven. It's the same rest that came upon Paul the Apostle who was stoned and left for dead and got up again and continued his work. It's an incredible rest that's coming upon his people. So we're not striving and trying to make things happen, but we've become vehicles of his presence to flow through. Thank you, Lord, for your rest. On the third day, sorry, on the third act that he did on the seventh day was so he, he blessed his people. He ended his work, he created rest, and he blessed his people. So on the seventh day, we can expect the spoken word of the Lord to begin to bless all of creation. And I believe this gift of prophecy will be one of the primary gifts in the last days. God's people will become prophetic mouthpieces for the blessing of the Lord. Instead of cursing, instead of cursing the government, you may not like certain elements of government. We have no right to curse them though. The Bible says that we're called to pray for those in authority, to pray and not curse, to bless and not curse. And the Bible teaches that righteousness exalts a nation. And when God's people begin to bless their nation and release the mind of God, the kingdom of God will come. See, that's what four running churches are about. They begin to speak words of life where it looks like there's death. Chad preached the other week about the dry bones and the the prophets speaking to the dry bones. And this is what we're called to do in this seventh day. The blessing of the Lord becomes paramount in all that we do. So what about blessing your workplaces, blessing your marriage? Instead of complaining about your husband, your wife, try blessing them. Oh, I tried that. Keep going. This is part of the seventh day. On the seventh day, God blessed. He spoke. He spoke. He spoke. He spoke. You are powerful people with powerful words. Imagine if everyone in this congregation blessed. Imagine if you all blessed me. Imagine if you all blessed our leadership. Imagine if you blessed Josh every week. I thank you for Josh, Lord. I thank you when he stands behind that keyboard, the anointing of your spirit rests on him. And I'm going to be here early next week, Lord, and ready to worship. Imagine. That's what forerunners are about. They prophesy. They speak. They bless. They realize they're part of the seventh day. They know their hour. They're ready for their hour. And seventh-day churches, they prophesy. They bless. They're in the rest. They know that God's about to finish the work, so there's great hope. But they speak blessing. And the fourth thing they did was that God did. He sanctified the seventh day. Think about that. He called it holy. He set it apart. And this tells us on the seventh day that God's people are going to have a revelation that they are holy and set apart for his purpose. What does that mean? It means that you're going to get a revelation of your assignment. It's not to sit in a pew and rot. I rebuke that spirit. I rebuke the religious spirit that would come to church. I'm not just talking about this. I'm talking about the church that would sit in the pew with no understanding of their assignment, that would sit with self-pity. Let's call it what it is. That would sit angry at God because he wasn't there their Father Christmas, that thought it was all about their inheritance and not his. And when he didn't come through, you cracked it and you're playing the silent game on him. I'm just calling it out now because this is a spirit that's been in the church. We've all been under it. Me too. That's got crossed with God because his ways are not our ways. That's all going. We are set apart for his purpose. And our deep desire is that what is on your heart is paramount to me. That's what it means to be a believer. Whatever is on your heart is on my heart. If, Father, your deep desire is that the Son is glorified for the sacrifice of the cross, then it's on my heart. And you said in Psalm 2 verse 8 that, that he would be the receiver of the nations. So in other words, I'm set apart for a holy calling. I have an assignment on my life that must be fulfilled. And it's not good enough just to come to church, put my offering in, go home and forget about it. 
I have an assignment. I am set apart. That's what holy means, to be sanctified and set apart for his purpose. Paul said it like this, I run the race before me. I don't fight like one who's beaten the air, but I, I, I discipline my body so I may run the race that God has set before me. You have a race to run. You have an assignment. And this assignment is about making the inheritance that Jesus has for his life come to pass. Seven years married to that man, and now she's in this new season, 84 years, seven times 12 Seven being a picture of the end time church, getting a revelation of who they are, where they're positioned. And 12 being a picture of governmental rule. The highest call is to deliver Jesus everything that belongs to him. Luke chapter 19 verse 10 is an interesting scripture because I've looked it up in probably 20 translations and... There's two ways of reading this scripture. And I think it's really quite funny that there are. It says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In some translations. I call that pastoral preaching. And it's true. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. People. He loves people. And the churches, by and large, embrace that calling. And if you don't know Jesus today, that is a powerful message, the gospel. Jesus came to seek and save every single person who is lost. Lost in relationship, lost, lost and out of, out, of, out of fellowship with Father. But it's interesting, other translations put it this way. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. I call this apostolic preaching. What was lost? Dominion was lost in the garden. And see, we've been sold a lie by the devil. Look, he doesn't want anyone to be saved. Let's get that straight. But if he has to, he will allow that. But he certainly doesn't want anyone to discover that we're called to have dominion. And so churches are made up of two things. Those that primary message are people are lost and then there are other churches that say, yeah, people are lost, but dominion was lost as well. And that God's passion is not just to see people saved, and it is that, but it's to see nations transformed and kingdoms transformed, to see all of society transformed. She lived for 84 years, seven being the picture of the seven-day church and 12 being the picture of government. I put it to you that she was praying and interceding for you and I. You say, that's a bit strange. Well, I think she was. I think she was obviously praying for Jesus and his first birth, and it was surrounded by, listen, incredible spiritual activity. When Moses was born, there was incredible spiritual resistance, was there not? Whenever a deliverer was born, all hell broke loose. So we have to imagine that as Jesus was about to come to earth, it was a time of intense warfare. Would you not agree? The enemy didn't want Jesus to come. He didn't know how he was going to come, but I believe he had wind that he was coming. It had been prophesied a Messiah was coming. So she underwent 84 years of intense warfare, birthing the coming of Jesus. So I put it to you, she was also praying for you and I. The Seventh-day Church about to usher in the government of God and the return of Jesus. And her prayers will not be denied. So we too undergo incredible intense warfare. When we hear a message like this, the enemy plays games with people tries to turn them off, make them fall asleep, tell them it's rubbish, deceiving, too hard, you need to have a, quite a life, don't listen to that lunatic. There's always intense pressure and warfare over this message because the enemy does not, does not want Jesus to get his prize. That's what the whole war was over in the wilderness. 
He wanted to rob Jesus of his inheritance. And so we, we're in a time now where there is intense warfare over this one thing. Will Jesus get his inheritance? And I say the fact that you are here at this time means that God has a call for you. And the call is this, you need to, you need to let go of that old man, that old husband, that old mindset, the old nature, the, the just going through nice religious motions. And you need to become like, and I do, like Anna, a wild woman of God who relentlessly pursued the purpose of God for her hour. Maybe her prayers were the very channel where the angel could come. Maybe her prayers were the, the very channel where God prepared Mary's heart to say, let it be according to your, your word. Someone was praying behind that. Someone was pressing, pushing. Someone had caught wind of what God wanted to do. And I put it to you, you've caught wind of that. Some of you, you felt God stirring you. It's because you're prophetic forerunners. You see ahead. You see what God wants to do. You're beginning to get a picture of what this city could look like if God's government came in its fullness. So you begin to declare that, pray it, believe for it, wrestle for it. That's what a prophetic church looks like. There are no seat warmers. There are no, no people just coming here and giving a tip. We're all like Anna. I'm not saying you have to pray and fast for 84 years, but we carry that determination. That Jesus, I know you're coming. And I am committed to seeing your government come to pass. Well, what does that look like, Andrew? Well, I, I don't know, really. I don't know all of it, but what I do know is this. It begins. It begins with one generation beginning to have a faith reach that says, I believe that. So that's what I'm asking you to do today. Just believe. Lord, I believe that there's an inheritance for the son. And it looks like this, that every sector of society will be influenced by your mind, like Joseph did to Pharaoh. You will raise up men and women all over this city and place them in positions of influence. I believe that. That's, that's your word. That's your will. So not only do I believe it, but I'm going to begin to speak it. And as we speak and believe it, this is what God will do. He will begin to build the infrastructure to house what he wants to do. See, this has been my problem. I can't see how you're going to do it. I can't see how you could bring all these people together who won't even work together to come together and fulfill your plan. And God says to me, that's not your problem. Your calling is to believe and speak. That's your calling. Your calling is to look up in the stars like Abraham did and said, Lord, I believe. I don't know how you're going to do this, but I believe. And God says, that's all I was looking for. Because I, I find it amazing that all Abraham gave God was, yes, I believe. And I will say what you say. I will call myself what you call me. And from that, a miracle came. Can you do that today? Would you... Get before the Lord and say, Lord, I believe. I may not understand it all, but I believe. I believe this is your plan in the last day, church. Your plan is this. And begin to call it out and speak it out and declare it. Go up and down your streets. Go in your suburbs. Go around your workplace. Go everywhere you can and declare it and speak. Imagine if all of us did it over this city. We walked. Karen and I have done this. We walked through streets where we think no Christian has declared this. We say, we declare the kingdom coming to this arena, the fullness of the kingdom, the mind of God to the business sector, where all shall prosper, where all the poor and the rich will come together with one purpose and one mind. Imagine if all the church began to declare that. That's what Anna did for 84 years, declaring, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So Lord, this day, we offer up ourselves as prophetic forerunners. I know it's not easy, church, at times, because you feel like you're alone, but God says you're not alone. Elijah said, Lord, I'm alone. He says, no, you're not alone. 
I've raised up many others. And you will find as you embrace this mindset that God will bring those to your left and your right and you're locking a mighty army like David. There were many that came to David as he began to pursue the kingdom. And God's going to bring people around you in the workplace and all different areas and connect you with like-minded people. So we say, Lord, a big yes to being a prophetic forerunner. Use us, Lord. Use this church. Let the DNA of this church come alive in a new way this day. A fresh understanding of our calling, not to be elite, not to be better than anyone else, but to understand this is your heartbeat for this hour. Let it be clearly articulated in every heart and in every mind. We say, Lord Jesus, together, that you are King and Lord over this city and that your mind for every sector of society, your wisdom, your grace, your love and your power will infiltrate every sector of society before you return. There will be a living manifestation of the kingdom on earth before you come in Jesus' name. We declare that now. There will be a living manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth before you come in every realm of society. They will know that there is a God in heaven. We declare that in Jesus' name. And we press in. We press in. We press in. We press in. That's what happens at the third level. Ask, seek and knock. We begin to wrestle and press and demand and decree. We go beyond our own comfort and natural desires and we begin to pick up the heartbeat and the ache of heaven. And we begin to articulate the mind and the heart of God for this hour. And there are groanings that come in our heart because we're beginning to speak heaven on earth. And I pray for every member here today that the groanings and the deep desires of heaven will be expressed through our lives. I'm asking, Lord, use me like you used Anna to prepare the coming of the Lord. Flow through us, Lord, with prophetic insight and wisdom in Jesus' name. I am a prophetic forerunner. I am a prophetic forerunner. That same anointing that was on Anna is on my life. I see what others don't see. I capture the heart of God and articulate it for my generation. I am the mouthpiece of Almighty God. This is our cry. This is what we say. We walk through our streets and we cry out and we articulate the heart of the Father for this city that goes beyond so much of our own understanding. His ways are so bigger than our ways. His heart to transform this city is so much bigger than what we've ever seen. We've not gone this way before. It's so bigger than what we could ever comprehend. And so we say, Lord, capture us. Take us up into your mind. We ask in Jesus' name.